Hello and welcome to this monthly podcast of the European Respiratory Journal. This is Martin Kolb, current chief editor of the ERJ, and with me today is Professor Toby Maher from the Imperial College of London, uh, who works at the Royal Brompton Hospital. Hi, Toby. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. So, uh, Toby, we are talking today uh, about two different papers that will be published in the March issue of the ERJ. The one paper is called Phase 2 Clinical Trial of PBI 4050 in Patients with Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis, first author Nasreen Khalil from Vancouver in Canada. And the second paper is called A Randomized Placebo-Controlled Study of Omipa. Palisip, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. First author is Pauline Lukey from Stevenage in the UK, and you are the corresponding author. Can you, for our audience, briefly summarize the key messages of these phase two trials in IPF? Um, so, yeah, so as you've said, both, both studies in IPF patients, um, I'm sure as the audience will be aware, we have our two antifibrotic drugs for IPF at the moment, perfenidone nintedanib. However, um, although they slow disease progression, they certainly don't prevent worsening in all patients. Uh, and of course, some patients can't take them due to tolerability issues. So we're still very much in need for new treatments in IPF. Um, both the studies we're discussing are fairly early phase studies, which is to say that they're looking at the effect of drug over a short period of time. Uh, really to get some indication that the drugs are behaving in the anticipated way rather than truly making an assessment of efficacy. Um, so the, 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 the paper looking at PBI 4050 um, is assessing a small molecule, which is actually a, a fatty acid, which blocks two um, G-protein coupled receptors that are responsible for activation of fibroblasts in the fibrotic lung. Um, essentially, this was an open-label study uh, over 12 weeks on top of background standard of care. Um, and interestingly, uh, there appeared to be some stabilization uh, of patients um, treated with the drug on top of nintedanib, but not on top of perfenidone. And it's been postulated that there is some drug-drug interaction uh, in patients uh, taking perfenidone as well as PBI 4050. However, it is an open-label study, so it's not possible um, to make absolute assessments about efficacy. The drug was uh, safe and tolerated over the course of the study. Um, the other study, the one that I was directly involved with, um, of uh, omelipizib, uh, <laughs> which is an almost impossible to say name for, for what is a pan PI3 kinase combined mTOR inhibitor. Um, in this study, we were looking at the effect of, of PI3 kinase and mTOR inhibition in the fibrotic lung, and we were really looking to see what the effects of inhibition were on intracellular signaling pathways and metabolism within the fibrotic lung. So PI3 kinase, as people may well know, is an intracellular signaling protein that's very important in the regulation um, of cell proliferation and also of the conversion of fibroblasts to myofibroblasts uh, and in the process of collagen synthesis. And essentially with this study, we did some very intensive monitoring of, of patients on the drug. We undertook PET scans before and after treatment for eight days, and we also undertook bronchoscopy before and after treatment. 
and we were able to demonstrate that combined PI3 kinase mTOR inhibition um, reduces metabolic activity in the fibrotic lung. So we know from previous studies that if you do PET scans on people with IPF, there's a lot of metabolic activity in the fibrotic regions. That was down-regulated. Uh, and furthermore, when we looked at the inflammatory cells, so the, predominantly the macrophages from the IPF lung, we could show uh, that the drug um, reduced phosphorylation of AKT. And AKT is, a, again, a, a downstream signaling molecule which is activated through phosphorylation. So we were able to show that oral dosing reduces activation of a downstream signaling molecule that is important in the process of um, pulmonary fibrosis progressing. Um, the study wasn't long enough to measure efficacy using uh, sort of lung function measures such as FVC. So we've been able to demonstrate that PI3 kinase mTOR inhibition has clear metabolic effects, that oral dosing gets drug into the lung clearly the next step would be to look at um, whether that has a, a genuine effect on fibrotic pathways. Okay, thank you very much. So these new studies in IPF often are called uh, proof of concept or proof of mechanism studies. And uh, that is something that facilitates the drug development and allows companies to move into the next uh, bigger and obviously more costly step, which is large phase two or phase three studies. Can you just explain that idea of a proof of concept, a proof of mechanism design. Yeah, so um, I mean, clearly the, the process of, of developing drugs that we can use in clinical practice is fairly laborious. And I think people are sort of aware of the terms phase one, phase two, and phase three without necessarily knowing in detail what that means. Um, but essentially, your phase one trials are the first time that you give a new drug to human beings. And normally, that would be healthy volunteers. So in a phase one study, uh, you're making sure that there are no unanticipated serious um, side effects or adverse events that limit the use of a, a particular drug molecule. At the other end of the spectrum, in phase three studies, um, what you're trying to do is prove to the drug regulators, so the FDA in the United States or the, the European Medicines Agency in Europe, that the drug is actually genuinely effective in the disease that you're testing. So in, in IPF, for instance, a phase three study would, would be the ones that we saw for, for perfenidone and nintedanib. And in essence, that would be a study where patients receive at least 12 months of treatment and where we look for change in force vital capacity. And I think the challenge with those studies is they tend to be quite big um, and they're incredibly expensive to run. And those, those studies will cost somewhere between 250 and 500 million uh, euros or dollars um, to deliver. So they're, they're no small undertaking. And so essentially what you've got in the middle are your phase two studies, um, which are designed to answer several questions potentially. So the, the proof of concept studies tend to be designed to prove that a specific drug has an effect in the disease that you're interested in. As you move through the phase two process in a sort of phase two B study, you might be starting to test different doses for longer periods of time to begin to see whether there's an efficacy signal. Um, and the advantage of a proof of concept study is that it allows you to really do a much more detailed study where you measure things in greater depth in the hope of understanding both how the drug works, how different doses of the drug behave, uh, and also that can then be used as a tool to make a decision about whether this is a sensible 
treatment approach to move into phase three studies. So it's a way of trying to filter out treatments that might not work, either because you don't see a clinical effect that's meaningful or because you, you fail to see any sort of biological effect in the organ that you're treating. And, and the, the two trials that we're discussing here are slightly different in the way they're designed. So the, the PI3 kinase mTOR study is very much designed to prove that blocking PI3 kinase and mTOR has a biological effect in the fibrotic lung that one might anticipate would reduce fibrosis going forward. So it's looking at the drug targeting a specific mechanism uh, with the, um, uh, the the study looking at PBI 4050 um, that is more designed to try and get an understanding about whether uh, the drug is efficacious on different background treatments um, and also the longer dosing period gives a, a gives more information about safety and possible side effects. Thanks, Toby. That was very helpful to understand the activities. We have seen quite a few studies in the last year or two, and if you look at the clinical trial registration uh, websites, uh, there are a number of trials registered. So a lot of activity in drug development in IPF. And uh, if I just tease your mind a little bit, what would you predict uh, will be the treatment of IPF in 10 years? Not necessarily specific compounds, but in general, will this be a one drug treatment, two, three uh, different drugs for different patients? Can you just give a little bit of speculation from your expertise? Yeah, so I, I, and I think um, IPF is, is quite clearly, from a biological point of view, a very complex disease with probably multiple different causes, including um, sort of genetic abnormalities. Um, we know that, that sort of genetic abnormalities in, in genes of aging, such as the telomeres, genes of, of host defense, such as the mucins, um, and also integrin genes that control epithelial integrity are important. We know that the environment and injury to the lung is an important driver of, of fibrosis. Um, and furthermore, we know that once the process has sort of begun, there are abnormalities in, in dozens of different pathways um, in different cell types that control um, normally the process of wound healing, which in, I, in IPF patients become uncontrolled and lead to sort of progressive production of scar tissue and extracellular matrix. So a bit like cancer, it is a disease where sort of multiple abnormalities in multiple pathways lead to sort of progression of fibrosis and ultimately death of our patients. Um, and so I, I think a bit like oncology, we can probably look to a future where we are using combinations of therapy to try and truly prevent disease progression in all our patients. Um, I think of the two treatments we've got at the moment, perfenidone and nintedanib, part of their successful effect probably comes from the fact that they block multiple pathways related to those wound healing processes that can cause scar tissue to be produced by the lung. I think in the future, we will probably be looking to combine treatment either on top of those or together that also have the effect of blocking multiple of those pathways. I also think that a bit like oncology, we're hopefully going to start to move to a more personalized medicine approach. So as we better understand the molecular pathways that are involved in the development of IPF, we may be in a position to identify whether different patients perhaps have different mechanisms leading to the same endpoint. And we know that's the case in, in 
lung cancer, for instance, some patients will be EGFR positive, some EGFR negative, and we will obviously treat those two groups of individuals in different ways. And I suspect 10 years from now, we may well be doing the same in IPF. We will be doing uh, molecular testing, be that looking at genetics or um, RNA profiles or certain protein biomarker profiles. And based on that, we will be selecting for individuals the treatment or treatments which are most likely to be effective for them. Okay. So just as a very quick question, in 10 years, you think that we will be able to stop IPF progression? <laughs> um, just that just would, an educated guess. <laughs> that, would, that would be the optimistic. I, I, I think... I like to think that for the majority of patients, we'll be in a position to stop IPF progression. Um, and I, I think the, the data so far show that we have shifted the survival curve with existing antifibrotic drugs. Um, but even when we've shifted that curve, if you compare the life expectancy of somebody newly diagnosed with IPF in the era of antifibrotics compared to somebody of the same age drawn at random from the general public, they're still losing 10 to 12 years at least of life expectancy by virtue of having idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, even with treatments available. So to, to get to the point where we're restoring a normal life expectancy for patients, we've got to make quite a few advances to genuinely prevent progression of fibrosis going forward. And probably we need to diagnose patients earlier, but that's a separate discussion. Good. Okay. Thank you, Toby. Um, so the future of IPF patients may not be bright, but it's definitely not as dark as 10 years ago. And this was Martin Kolb, chief editor of the European Respiratory Journal, discussing two recent papers that will be published in the March edition of the ERHA about early phase two trials in IPF. And this podcast was joined by Professor Toby Maher from the Roy Prompton Hospital in London. Thank you very much, Toby, and to our listeners, have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. Bye.